Today's reading comes from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. Please follow along in your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's a stack at the back. Otherwise, uh, you can read along on the screen behind me. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and distress uh, in, and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy." And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. 
the unexpected could make you a victim or a survivor. Would you know what to do? Welcome to Worst Case Scenario. Bear Grylls has a new mission. Stay really close to me. Putting himself into the real-life scenarios you fear most and finding the smartest ways keep calm just think through the situation to get out alive worst case scenario all new series wednesday at 10 only on discovery or worst case scenario a show where bear grills tells you how to escape from the worst case scenario i love that line he says just stay calm we'll get out of this i think no 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 but he goes through all different kind of scenarios that you might come up against like a dog attack or an earthquake being trapped in a freezer or being an ele- in an elevator that is plunging to the ground and especially that one being in an elevator plunging to how do you keep calm in that you don't even have time to react let alone think i would have thought but anyway the show wasn't terribly successful it only lasted one season but i think it taps into something for us it taps into that fear of what if it was me It's unlikely, though, that we're ever going to be in one of those situations. However, I do think as as, as humans, there's something about it, isn't it? That we we do think often, what if I got caught in a worst-case scenario? Not perhaps something like that, but something more like, you know, financial ruin, a, a very important relationship ending, the death of a close friend. What would I do if I was in that worst-case scenario? Here at church, we've been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I've called this series The Return because these books cover the history of the Jewish people returning back to their land after spending years in exile in Babylon. So we're talking in in time about the 4 and 500s BC. And today we meet Nehemiah himself, as Jen just read for us. We are going to cover quite a bit today, seven chapters in fact, but as we do, we're going to see these returned exiles that, that they're in what is perhaps for them a, a worst case scenario. And as we see them there, we're kind of going to ask ourselves, as God's people today, what do we do when we get into those moments, when it's worst case scenario for us? So here's the plan for today. I'm going to take us through... Uh, what happens through the seven chapters. And again, I'm not going to be able to cover everything in detail. So we've got a question time coming up later. If I don't cover something you want to ask about, feel free to ask a question then. But after we go there, after we go through kind of what happens, I'm just going to pull out uh, a few different things that are going to be important for us. So as we get into it, let me pray, huh? Let me pray for us. But Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you're a God who speaks and doesn't say, stay silent. And we just wanted to ask now that you would grant us to be able to hear your words and live them out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we need to do is just get our bearings again. Last week, we finished in the book of Ezra, uh, which, which left us in Jerusalem with the returned exiles. Today, though, we, we kind of like fast forward 13 years and we're not in Jerusalem anymore. Now we're in Susa. This is the capital city of the great Persian Empire. It's in modern-day Iran. And this is a place where King Artaxerxes, the great Persian king, lives. And it's also the place where Nehemiah is living. And although we're there in Susa, we hear about what's happening in Jerusalem. Someone who's been to Jerusalem comes back to Susa 
And he finds Nehemiah, and look what he says to him. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And we probably get the background to this from Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra chapter 4, we, we heard that the Jews had started to try and rebuild the city walls, but the other nations around them didn't like this, and they complained to the king, and King Artaxerxes put a complete stop to any rebuilding. In fact, it sounds like from what we read in Nehemiah, that the king even had any, any rebuilding they'd done, the king had destroyed and burned. And for the returned Jews now, who were back in Jerusalem, this would kind of feel like worst case scenario for them. They'd be thinking, you know, finally we're back here in the land, the promised land. Finally, we're experiencing the blessing of God in our lives. Things are going well. But now this, we've got neighboring people that are against us. We've got a mighty and brutal king that is against us. We're in trouble. We're in disgrace. It's likely that they're wondering to themselves, is our nation just going to be crushed all over again? So Nehemiah hears this. And what does it drive him to do? He prays. He prays and then he acts. So we, we see him pray in verse 4. Verse 4, Nehemiah weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. Jen read out the prayer to us before, but right at the end of it, we got a little important piece of information about Nehemiah. You know, he's not just any old person. He's quite important. He is the, the king's cupbearer. He's the very king who put an end to the Jews trying to rebuild their city walls. This is the king that Nehemiah is mixing drinks for. He's like a personal bartender to this guy. And so Nehemiah prays, and then he goes to the king. And then he does what I think is very brave. <laughs> he asks permission to do what the king had stopped just years before. Chapter 2, verse 4. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. If it takes a lot of bravery for Nehemiah to ask this question, then it, it, it takes the king doing something unthinkable to agree. But amazingly, surprisingly, he does. The king agrees to send Nehemiah. He even ensures that Nehemiah will have safe passage. He gives him building materials. And off goes Nehemiah. In, in, in 455 BC, Nehemiah leads back a third group of Jews out of exile back to Jerusalem. Here's the question. What's Nehemiah's purpose in doing all of this? What's well, to rebuild the city walls, right? That's, that's what he's there to do. But it's, it's more than that. It's something deeper than that. For Nehemiah, his main concern is the people. The whole reason he wants to go back and build the walls is for the good of the people. The, the walls being broken, destroyed and burned are a sign of the people being in danger. 
being in disgrace and being in shame. It screams out to anyone who comes by that here is a people abandoned, abandoned by their king, perhaps even abandoned by their God. So Nehemiah leaves Susa. He travels back to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, this is what he says to the Jewish people. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. See, Nehemiah builds the walls because he cares for the people. So I just want to take a brief aside and talk about our ministry here. You know, a lot of us serve in, in different ministry teams at our church, which is excellent. Here's a question, why? Why do we do the things that we do? Is it because we want to do the kind of things that a church should do? We want to run the right programs and so we can feel good about ourselves, so we can tick the box and say we're, we're the right kind of church for anyone who bothers to look in at us. We're, we're doing the right kind of things. We, we know that's not it, is it? We know it's not. We do the things we do. We serve in the teams we serve in for the sake of people, for the sake of each other. No matter what team we're on, it's good to always be reminded of this. The things we do, we do for people, we do for each other. So Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he gets the people to rebuild the wall. And the building begins and it is a, it, it, it is a great scene. Everyone gets involved. That's really what we see in chapter 3. Um, the priests get into it, even the high priest. People from other towns come to rebuild a section of the wall. There's goldsmiths get involved, perfume makers, rulers of cities, so mayors. Not just men either. The women are there amongst it. They're all assigned to a part of the wall to rebuild. Um, it would have looked something like this if it was a top, top view looking down. I showed this picture to my community group earlier this week and someone said, that kind of looks like a chicken drumstick you'd get from KFC. That made me hungry. <laughs> That's a wonderful illustration of what it's like when God's people get together to do God's work. This is what the professor spoke about before. It serves as a reminder to us. Yeah, we all have various gifts and skills and abilities and life experience and personalities. And, and when we get together and use our gifts use who we are to do God's work, it's actually, it's a really beautiful thing, isn't it? So it seems like things are going really well in Jerusalem, but we start to hear about problems. The first problem is that there's opposition to the Jews from the, the neighboring peoples around them. We kind of caught a glimpse in this as Jen finished um, her reading in chapter 2. You see, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and we hear about two kind of high-ranking officials, Sanballat and Tobiah, and they don't like that Nehemiah has come to work for the good of the Jewish people. And then later on, when the building is really getting underway, they're joined by another guy, Geshem, and together the three of them kind of mock and ridicule the Jews as they try and build this wall up. This mocking continues in chapter 4, 
But then things also ramp up a little bit. In chapter 4, verse 8, we hear of a, a plan for a violent attack. It says, They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. The Jews find out about this, and so they have to now start carrying weapons around everywhere and station guards at different points in the city. And you can imagine, this kind of takes away a bit from the work of rebuilding the walls. Suddenly there's fewer people doing the building because now some of them have to stand at different places and stand guard. And even the ones that keep building, you know, they can carry bricks in one hand, but in the other hand they have to carry their sword around. It, it slows the rebuilding down. But things continue to escalate in chapter 6. Uh, they try to assassinate Nehemiah. In, uh, later on in chapter 6, they also try to hire a, a prophet to work against Nehemiah. This is actually a really good story. Um, um, so there's this prophet, uh, and he has Nehemiah over to his house. And while they're kind of hanging out, the prophet said suddenly that he's got an oracle from God. He says to Nehemiah, someone's coming to kill you, and we need to go into the inner part of the temple, and we need to close the doors, and we'll be safe there. But Nehemiah knows, hang on, no, no, no. I'm not the kind of person that's supposed to go into that part of the temple. And so he refuses. And look at what it says in chapter 6, verse 12. Nehemiah writes, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. There's opposition from these neighboring peoples. And it's pretty high stakes, right? They want blood. And it's constant, right? It just keeps coming and coming and coming. But if that's not bad enough, the Jews are also facing their own internal problems. We see this in chapter 5. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 3 and verse 4, we hear of two things that are making life hard for the Jews. Firstly, there's a famine, so food prices are high. But secondly, also there's, there's this king's tax, which is quite large, and it's adding a lot of financial pressure onto households. And, and some families aren't coping with these high costs of living. They're mortgaging their houses to buy food, but then they're losing their houses. They're borrowing money to pay the taxes, but they can't afford the repayments. And so instead of paying, then their, their, their kids are being taken and enslaved as a form of repayment. This is very horrible stuff, isn't it? But what's even worse is that it's Jews doing this to each other. It's the Jewish moneylenders and bankers. They're charging interest, which is something that God told them they were never meant to do to each other. They're charging interest and putting their countrymen in deeper and deeper debt. This is not just this external opposition but internally, there's problems as well. Social decay. And you've got to think at this point, it's worst case scenario for the Jews. Things are really bad. You know, what else could go wrong for them at this point? And you've got to ask, what's going to happen to the city walls? With all that's going on, all these threats and problems and opposition... What, what's what's going to happen to the to the rebuilding project, the work that God has given them to do? Well, we get to chapter six, verse fifteen, and it just says this. So the wall was completed on the twenty fifth of Elul in fifty two days. Just kind of out of the blue, 
amidst all the problems and threats and, and opposition, out of the blue, suddenly the wall is finished. And the question we should be asking is how? How has this happened so quickly? 52 days, not bad. How has this happened at all with everything else that's going on? But if we go back through Nehemiah, we see really clearly how this happened. God made it happen. He actually stands behind everything that's gone on here. So let's think back through, the, through, through, through what happened again. How did Nehemiah get permission from the king? How did Nehemiah get the king to reverse a policy he'd made just a few years before? In chapter 2, verse 8. The gracious hand of God was upon him. Well, think about it a bit more. Why did Nehemiah want to give up his comfy job, a fun job, living in the most happening city on earth at the time? Give up that to go back to Jerusalem, a place for nobodies, and to spend his time not mixing drinks, but doing dirty construction work, heavy labor which he knew there was going to be opposition to. Why does he do it? In chapter 2, verse 12, God put it on his heart. Well, then why did the people get behind Nehemiah? You know, a lot of them just a few years before had tried and, and they'd seen their efforts crumpled, burned. Why do, how does he convince these people to commit themselves again to that dirty, laboring, gritty job of rebuilding these walls? Well, 2.18. They see that it is God's hand on Nehemiah. That this is God's work he wants them to do. Why do the plots of Sanballat and Tobiah and others fail? Why don't they succeed in stopping the Jews or, or killing people? Because, well, 4.15, God had frustrated their plans. How do the Jews pull together to build the wall despite their own internal problems and conflicts? 6.16, their work was done with the help of God. Friends, this isn't chance. This is not destiny just to get the walls up. It's not down to Nehemiah's brilliant leadership and strategy, although God does use him. It's not down to the people just putting their differences aside and pulling together, although God certainly does use them. But ultimately, friends, this is God's work. He makes it happen. He brings it to be. He, he, he uses Nehemiah and he uses the people and he uses them to do his work, to ensure that his work gets done. And that really is, 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 is what happens in the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. Which is all good and well, but we want to ask the question, What's this mean for us today? What, what do we take away from this? Really, there's, there's, there's kind of a lot we could say. There's seven chapters worth here, right? But, but there's three things I want to pull out now. The first one is this. When God's people do God's work, they should expect opposition. This is the pattern we've seen already in Ezra. It's the pattern we see repeated in Nehemiah. In fact, there's something you see throughout the whole Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament. God's people doing God's work should expect opposition. So I want to say to us today, when we do God's work, we should expect opposition, friends. 
So don't be surprised when it comes as if it was something strange or odd or unusual. I mean, don't go looking for it as if when you're uh, being opposed, that that is actually the, the mark of being truly faithful to God. No, don't go looking for it, but, but expect that it will come at some point. And what do you do then when it comes? Well, I think the Jews rebuilding their city walls were a really good example here. Um, they, they were mocked and ridiculed, but it didn't distract them from doing what God had given them to do. Just like that, we shouldn't be distracted from doing God's work, even when we face opposition. Instead, keep doing the kind of things that God would have us do, friends. Keep living for Jesus. Keep, keep growing in your faith. Keep loving our church. Keep serving each other. Keep, keep trying to share your faith in Jesus. And don't let any opposition we might face distract us from these things. That's the first thing. God's people doing God's work should expect opposition. But secondly, remember this. God is the same now as he was back then in Nehemiah's day. Let me explain. Um, as Christians, we, we need to make sure we read the Old Testament well. And I said this last week, but you know, well, here's a Bible timeline. Um, Nehemiah was there, we're over here. And what's the big thing that happens in between? Jesus, well done. Yes, yes. Um, Jesus. And, and so when we read the Old Testament, we need to make sure that Jesus is shaping how we apply the Old Testament to our lives. That is good and right and true, and you should do it. But, and knew that was coming, knew that but was coming, but we still do read the Old Testament as God's people today. When we read the Old Testament, we meet God as he truly is. Because God does not change. Friends, the God we meet in the pages of Nehemiah today is the same God that we know through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the same God that we pray to as our Father. So friends, I just wanted to pause and say, have you seen your God in the pages of Nehemiah today? Did you see the God who takes great care of his people? Not to take opposition away from them, but he's there with his people in the midst of it. Who ultimately frustrates the plans of those who oppose his people. Friends, this is your God who cares for you too. And in, in the pages of Nehemiah, did you see the God who uses his people all sorts of different people with all sorts of different lives. But God used them all to do his work. Friends, this is your God too. And he can use you to do his work even today. Friends, in the pages of Nehemiah, did you see the God who gets his work done? When there were all sorts of problems, when the setbacks just kept coming... When the opposition persisted, God still got his work done. What he wants to happen will happen. What he says will happen will happen because God makes it happen. Friends, this is your God. And he will get his work done today too. 
which leads me on to the third thing I want to say today then, the third thing. I've been talking a lot about worst-case scenarios, and really here's the big thing that we've seen today. Even in the midst of like a worst-case scenario, God gets his work done. This happened in Nehemiah. You know, the people were in trouble, distress, and shame. The rebuilding of the walls had failed in the past. Now they're trying it again, but they've got opposition from outsiders, internal problems too. It's worst case scenario, and yet God still gets his work done. In fact, we see this throughout the whole Bible, time and time again. In the midst of, of the most of, of these cases that just seem like worst case scenario, God keeps getting his work done. And there's no clearer example of this than the life of Jesus. You know, here is Jesus, he's God in the flesh. Come to be with us. He does um, amazing things. His teachings are revolutionary. And what happens to him? He ends up on a cross. Arrested, convicted, crucified. I mean, surely this is worst case scenario, right? But even in that moment, through the very thing, God got his work done. Bringing forgiveness. And redemption and reconciliation to a world that had strayed from him. Even in the midst of a worst case scenario, God gets his work done. Friends, this ought to give us encouragement all through life. When it seems like we're in those cases of worst case scenario, things are falling apart. We need to know this, that God's work will not fail. It should give us great encouragement for our Christian lives, our lives of faith. Sometimes it might feel like we're getting nowhere as a Christian. We're just not growing. And we look around at others and we think, my Christian life is in the pits. In those moments, friends, know this. God's work won't fail. He will do his work in you. And so this, this, this should give us great encouragement in our mission. How often when we talk about mission, do we tend to think in the case of, uh, in, in worst case scenarios? You know, I think if I take a chance and talk about Jesus, well, you know, what if it ends up going badly? What if I don't know what to say? Or what if someone doesn't like me? Or what if I lose a friendship over this? So notice there in, in those things, my eyes were on me, weren't they? What I do, what I'm lacking, what's going to happen to me. But actually, this is God's work. Mission is God's work. And God gets his work done, even if I find myself in worst case scenario. That changes things, doesn't it? It leads me firstly to pray because at its heart, mission is not what I do. It's what God does. It's his work. So I'm going to pray and I'll ask him to be at work. But importantly, it gives me confidence because it is God's work and God gets his work done. He can even use me to do it. So I have confidence then to just step out and give it a go. So thinking really practically, what does it mean? Well, again, I want to come back to something I said earlier. 
why not have a go this week at asking someone the big question? What would make God worth believing in? It's just a simple way to express our confidence that, that God will get his work done. He can even use us to do it. And who knows how God might use you this week. Can I pray for us, friends? Let me pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you are at work, that you keep being at work and that you get what you want done, even when it feels like things are falling apart for us. We wanted to pray that you would use us this week. Father, please use us to do your work of bringing people to know Jesus and live for him. We pray for your help in this because we need it constantly. We ask that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.